You are listening to The Exchange. I'm your host, Dr. Lorraine. Welcome everybody to this special edition of our podcast. I am so honored to have my special guest with me today, Brother Dr. Robin Johnson, Reverend Dr. Robin Johnson. And he is going to be here and he's going to be talking to us about his thoughts on the Asbury revival. There are many opinions and many thoughts that are going out, but I wanted to speak to him because I know that he taught my modern Pentecostal movements class and I wanted to hear from him. So welcome, Dr. J. Thank you so much for being my guest on the podcast. It's a pleasure to have you. It's my delight to be to be with you on on the podcast and to talk about revival and what God's doing. Yes, that's a wonderful topic to be um, discussing today. So I wanted to start off with, for those of you who do not know Dr. Johnston, um, why don't you go ahead and talk to us about where you're from, your family, ministry, the education, and the stuff that you do at headquarters. All right. I I grew up in New Brunswick, so I was born in, on the east coast of Canada. I grew up in in New Brunswick, came down to the States said, when I graduated from high school to attend Gateway College, uh, what, you, what is now Urshan College, but those days was Gateway College of Evangelism. Uh, was there, stayed a couple of years. In those days, they had a high school, taught in a high school. And then at 24, uh, my wife, Marcia, and our uh, first child left to go to Victoria, British Columbia, and we planted a church in Victoria. So it was there until uh, almost 40, came back to St. Louis with a couple of daughters at that point, a son and a couple of daughters, and mm-hmm. uh, back to teach a gateway and to be the academic dean and the uh, ultimately the executive vice president. Uh, went back to school at that point to get a master's degree, um, got a master's in theological studies from Covenant uh, Theological Seminary, which is a conservative presbyterian uh, mm-hmm. seminary which was its its own interesting place uh and then um in 2003 started a phd program at regional university in renewal studies with um, an emphasis in history of world christianity 2007 came from uh, gateway to headquarters to be the associate editor and ultimately the editor-in-chief and president of what is now a Pentecostal Resources Group. So I kind of served the United Pentecostal Churches as the editor-in-chief for the church and then a president. Uh, still teach at UGSD, um, teach classes typically every year, teach at least once modern Pentecostal movements class, teach a, most of the history classes. So story of Christianity, early in, early church history, Reformation and modern church history, and probably more germane to this particular subject, uh, teach a class occasionally on revival and revivalism. All right, so there's, and what is your PhD in? PhD is in renewal studies, uh, emphasis on history of world Christianity. Okay, awesome. All right. Essentially Pentecostal history. Pentecostal history. All right. And so Dr. Johnson, when I worked at the Pentecostal Publishing House, so he, I worked with him on the headquarters where he was division of publication. So now Pentecostal Life, it used to be, um, what was it? Did it used to be? It used to be division of publication and then 
Pentecostal Research Group, like maybe the magazine Pentecostal Herald is now Herald. Pentecostal Life. Pentecostal right. Herald, right? And now it's Pentecostal Life. Awesome. So I wanted just to start out um, with asking you, what is your understanding right now of what's going on um, at Asbury, this Asbury Chapel Services? And we know that it's not just it has kind of spread to several different campuses. Um, I was just looking at social media today and just uh, saw Texas A&M and there are several different college campuses that have um, prayer meetings that are going on. So kind of what is your understanding of how this kind of started? You know, I think it's a, when I say typical, I, I don't mean that. I mean that in the best of possible ways, I guess. Uh, historically, um, and there have been, since there have been, you know, universities and colleges, uh, gatherings of young people periodically uh, throughout the history of Christianity, there will be, you know, outbreaks of the spirit. There's an intense hunger in in the lives of young adults as they are trying to make life decisions, figure out you know, there's a sense of purpose. Uh, they still have some rose-colored glasses on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so historically, you'll, you know, you'll see, if I go back just a little bit to the birth of the charismatic movement in the, uh, in the 60s and 70s, you know, we kind of often put that in terms of as a starting point in, a, in a, an Episcopal church in Van Nuys, California. But there were, a, you know, in, in particular the Catholic charismatic movement, the two key places for the outbreak of the Catholic charismatic movement were uh, Duquesne University just outside Pittsburgh and mm-hmm. Notre Dame in, in South Bend, Indiana. That's, that was kind of the seedbed. And you'd see that there's been a, a history at Asbury of outbreaks and, and during the charismatic movement was a pretty significant uh, hunger outbreak of the spirit. So I, I think I maybe to reframe the question, what, what do I think is going on? I think students are hungry and I think God is reaching out to meet their hunger. Right. And so this isn't, you mentioned not the first time, maybe this might be the first time in maybe a while because of social media that this might be more, there might be more exposure to it. And we're hearing it so much more on Facebook and Instagram and all of these other outlets. So it's not the first time that it happened. It may just be the first time that it's been so very widespread and, and covered by the news. and and, And I think there's also a sense in America right now that we're increasingly secular. Mm-hmm. You know, much of the conversation in broader church circles are is the rise of the nuns. The the you know the people who aren't going to church. The generation that's at college right now, or or the generation that has left college and is mm-hmm. are in the young adult uh, period of their life. That's the majority of those nuns. So you have to read and understand why the interest in Azusa or you know, Asbury is so great. It's over against this backdrop of this rise of the nuns, uh, N-O-N-E-S, not N-U-N-S. <laughs> right. And so I, I think that uh, a lot of people believe that it had a lot to do with, it started on Monday, um, that there was, I don't know, some sort of award show that had some sort of demonic kind of um show or performance that was done. And so there have been many people that have felt like there was a connection to um, Hollywood taking its place and trying to show these demonic kind of performances. And the very next day, 
it appeared that this is kind of when this this revival or the these prayer meetings started. Yeah, and I've, I've heard that, and and, and there, it's possible that might be a, a catalyst. But I my my guess is that there is a, a much more pervasive hunger, search of meaning, search for spiritual connection. Uh, that this taps into again what triggered that particular Monday that 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 may have triggered, but I think that's I think that's probably overblown. Um, okay. It may be I, the timing. I wouldn't make a one-to-one connection. I think there's a there's a there's a deeper hunger that is evidenced, particularly as it spreads across uh, the nation. I think you. you generations you know the, the characteristics of generations you know as as we get older as i get older mm-hmm. as all of us get older you compress these generate you know i i want to look at anybody under 40 as you know and put them all in the same group as young mm-hmm. people and and there are these generations that come up that demographers uh are looking at and i think this is a rise of you know so this is this is not Gen X people, you know, this is, these are Gen Z's or, or whatever comes after. I can't, I can't keep my generation straight. <laughs> and they, in, in the same way that baby boomers that I'm a part of and, and, and the greatest generation that precedes me had characteristics that kind of went across the, the demographic. I think that's probably true for these rising generations. And I think there's, I think there's a deep spiritual hunger. So I'm going to go into my next question is, who is someone who has studied church history like you have? And I mentioned that you did um, you did teach modern Pentecostal movements in one of the classes that I was in, as well as story of Christianity. So a lot of these people are um, using parallels to Azusa Street. So what might be the, the similarities and the differences from the Azusa Street revival? Yeah, for I think for Pentecostals, Azusa Street is is almost biblical. It's it's certainly iconic. Um, similarities and differences. Uh, Azusa wasn't college campus. It um, it really started out, you know, as African American uh, prayer meeting, a home prayer meeting. It spread, you know, outgrew a couple of homes until ultimately they bought or acquired the, the the building there at Azusa, 312 Azusa Street. So I, I think the, the dem- and then it, it quickly becomes multiracial and or, or interracial and, and multi-ethnic. Um, but again, not these aren't college students. They're often young younger adults, uh, but certainly not exclusively younger adults. And if you look at the pictures of the street leader, there are some some people who would fit my uh, age bracket. So uh, it's hard for me to stretch down to young anymore when it comes to demographics. So, and, and the similarities I think is the the this ongoing nature that like the well, for almost three years of Zusa Street service every day. Um, not, I mean, it's an outpouring of the. And probably what's different, so the, the similar one of the similarities is this hunger and this ongoing, you know, all day, probably not twenty four seven, but almost twenty four seven 
outpouring of the Spirit. Difference, at least from what I've seen and heard about at Asbury, is uh, Azusa was saw itself as a mission, and so it was very evangelistic. There, uh, Seymour William Seymour, who leads that mission, number one, he leads it. And I don't, you know, I've not, no name has come to the forefront, at least for me, for Asbury yet. It doesn't seem like there's there's any one name associated with it. But uh, I think sometimes we downplay William Seymour. I, part of, I, I think in some attempt to outplay the work of the Spirit, we, we downplay his influence. He was, he was uh, a good leader and uh he was in charge, and, and and they were sending mission teams everywhere in Los Angeles at that time. Most people traveled by rail uh, streetcar, and at the end of those streetcars, they typically would set up some kind of mission, so they're evangelizing. Mm-hmm. What another similarity you know, quickly would be that people came from around the world to Azusa Street, and so people are coming into Asbury. So there, there are some parallels, some differences. Mm-hmm. And I was just thinking as you were talking that um, we're talking about William Seymour and talking about Lucy Farrell, that from what I understand is that this revival did start because somebody received the Holy Ghost, that Lucy Farrell um, prayed for somebody and they received the Holy Ghost. So it was the Holy Ghost that, that was received, and that was kind of what started the the right. prayer meetings and stuff. So it started with the Holy Ghost. Right, right. And that was yes. like the difference. Right. So um, I wanted to ask, so are there any potential negative outcomes that could happen from the these ongoing chapel services? It's hard to think about negative because this is these are people that are hungry for God and they are praying continuously. But do you see just maybe the way that it's organized or? I, I, I don't know. If negative is how I characterize it, but the two previous uh outbreaks, not on college campuses, one that's often called the Toronto Blessing that happened at Airport Vineyard uh, in, in Mississauga, Toronto, Ontario. And then the latter, last one of great significance was in Pensacola, Florida, uh, Brownsville Revival. Mm-hmm. Perhaps most surprising from both Toronto and Pensacola is there is no lasting effect. There's when the revival is over, when people are coming, you know, a million people probably came to Brownsville, but you couldn't tell that in Pensacola, there was no impact on the particular city. Same would be true. People left uh, and went back to their church around the world and there there was lasting impact that way, but there didn't seem to be any impact on, of of significance on the particular cities. Uh, But, you know, as as I looked at revivals, for particularly for that revival and revivalism class, study revivals, the, the nature of the emotional intensity and the nature, you know, the way you're, you're bought in completely, that it can't contain, continue, it can't sustain itself because we're not, we're not wired. There, mm-hmm. There's a, there's a breathing, there's a rhythm. Um, and, and, but with any revival, maybe this is any danger, any revival, this one included has the potential negative uh, possibility. So it, it throws over conventions. Uh, what is what is the normal pattern? Uh, and 
there's always an uncontrollable element to it. There's always a way in which it can go sideways quickly. And because it's so spontaneous and because it's so from under, as opposed to from top down, but coming up mm-hmm. under, it, it can go, it can get weird pretty quickly. Because <laughs> there's no leadership. And when you're talking about it being there's, from the bottom up, there's no leadership, right. there's no clear leader. And so we right. know, like you mentioned in Azusa Street, we had William Seymour. We had some very key people that were sort of bringing the mission together or bringing people together and kind of had the direction. And so for this, there really is no clear direction. Yeah. So, you, you know, you have the, you know, to use an analogy, the fire revival that burned. It can become wildfire as it, you know, the uncontrollable nature of it. So the tension within any revival movement is that the sense that it needs to be controlled or harnessed or a controlled burn or, again, I'm working the analogy a little too hard, but that's where kind of leadership comes. And then, you know, we would believe as one's Pentecostals, and I think rightly so, that that God reaches down and, and responds to the hunger they then need to follow the leading of that spirit into the fullness of truth so this is an outreach from god there's there's a necessary response that that god that they follow where the spirit leads which ultimately would be into biblical new birth Mm -hmm. it's all a doctrine yeah so um, my next question is that some of apostolics are asking when is Pentecostals are asking why they're not having the revival or the attention that Asbury having in their own cities and so you know we're seeing this and thinking like okay why are we not having it in our churches and so what would you tell people that are saying you know that I don't I don't know what's going on like we have the truth we have what you know we have the word of God but why is this not happening in our churches and maybe it is happening in some churches we may not know about it it's not so widely publicized but um what would you say to somebody that's like why are we not seeing it you know if I went if I went to the New Testament uh and look for an answer to that in the life of Jesus and again it's a little different deal but you know, you have this Syrophoenician woman who approaches Jesus and asks for healing for her daughter. And he, Jesus even suggests, you know, why, why would I, why would I respond to you? Because you know, I, I come to the household of Israel. But she pushes. She's hungry. She, mm-hmm. she, she believes. In fact, she's one of the people. And you know, there's, you know, in the, in the Gospels, often there is the the no faith people that usually established religious people and the little faith strangely enough is usually the disciples mm-hmm. and if you if you look in the, the gospel stories look for this great faith the great faith is almost always outsiders right that's where and so i think i, I think the short answer is the, the intensity of that hunger and, and the, i i you know maybe it's not that we're not hungry for a move of god um but we have felt the power of it. So we're hungry to see God expand his kingdom. We're, but personally, we're we're at church on Sunday. We feel the presence and the moving of God. We're, we're not feeling this deep spiritual longing to connect with God because we do it daily on a pretty right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We're a regular basis. So it's not so our, our hunger for a revival for us is how do we it's a hunger for the harvest probably not a hunger for 
my own spiritual welfare, which I think is, I don't think they're worrying about the harvest at Asbury. I think they're worrying about, I'm hungry. I need, I need God in my life. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's, I think two things are happening. And, um, and that makes sense so because I, the way that you're putting that is like, it's true. We have, we have God and we have, if we've been having apostolics as we should have an everyday prayer life, we go to church on the regular. We feel the spirit of God all the time. And every time we go into church, we know who to call on. And so these people have not felt and don't know what we know, have not felt what we felt. And so there is this hunger that is inside of them, but I understand what you're trying to say, or correct me if I'm wrong, that it's for the harvest, that that's kind of a different, different thing. Yeah. We want to see, we want to see the church grow. We want to see the gospel. We want other people to to experience. And we're, you know, while we want that, we're probably not as, I mean, we're probably as hungry for, (laughs) it's a preferred outcome. It's what we would really like to see, but are we, willing to linger in his presence for four days without leaving if that's what it takes to make you know and i don't know that i mean the one thing i know about revivals is it's really hard to know anything about them (laughs) is that they they come almost as as wind and and it's the way god and and, in that you know class i teach at urshan um revival and revivalism there's kind of so you know uh, one thought on revival is that it's a a sovereign work of god and revivalism is what we do to bring about revival so what i try to do in that class is contrast uh jonathan edwards who suggests that you know you know sinners in the hands of an angry god that whole uh, great awakening and he would say revival is that surprising act of God over against uh, Charles Finney who, who had revival measures. You need altars. You need, there's a certain way that you have an altar call. You, you can bring people to the point of an encounter. And so there's always this tension about does, does God just sweep in and we don't do anything or can we do something that, that, that brings people to God? And that's, that's the, that's the tension we wrestle with in that class. And I think that's the tension we wrestle with in life. Mm-hmm. And like what you mentioned before, we aren't built for a continuous revival. Physically, we can't. And I think about the revivals that happen in my church. We have maybe three, four weeks revival, but we can't continue in that mode because after a while, physically, I mean, I'm thinking, especially what time of year it is, depending on you're starting to get sick, your body is starting to wear down. You can't be at the church every day. You'd like to, but it's just not, it's not possible for it to go on for long, long periods of time. And, you know, like you mentioned, God comes in, he sweeps in and does a great thing and we set things up, but, you know, but then it's the daily walk with God. It's the going to church regularly. It's the everyday um, consistency that we have with God that I feel like, and correct me if I'm wrong, I, I feel like that's the most important thing to me. It's not that we don't want revival, but it's like, I want my daily walk with the Lord. I want the highs and I want to feel the Lord and his presence. And I want great things to happen. But to me, it's just about, am I walking daily with the Lord? Do I have a prayer life? Do I read my Bible every day? And is this sustainable? I mean, 
and I don't know that there's an eschatological emphasis on what's happening in Asbury, but often there's in revivals, the Lord's coming. So you maintain this tension because you think he's coming like immediately. And of course, the you know, Pentecostalism was built on that idea. But if you went back to the, like the Welsh revival, again, uh, incredible revival with, with great uh, sense of repentance, uh, I I would, I'm convinced that people receive the baptism of the Spirit, but such an in, incredible conviction that mine owners had to tell miners, "Don't bring back tools you've stolen. We we've got too many. You return so much that you know keep what you have." But a generation later, just one generation, there is no impact whatsoever of that revival on Wales. It's like it never happened. Hmm. So. Part of what has to happen in revival like this is you got to figure then how do we how do we how do we move from this basking in his presence to the daily discipleship to be formed into his image, his character. And one thing that I learned when I was at UGST, and maybe it was at some of the chapel service or some of the teachings, is that um, I remember hearing now that we're talking about this that it's not about the dunk number. It's not about the Holy Ghost, uh, how many people got the Holy Ghost. I believe it was Brother Stan Gleason taught this at launch. It's about how many people have the Holy Ghost a year later, how many people are still in church a year later. And so, you know, we have these massive crusades. And like you said, that's wonderful. But the sustainability, how many of those people are still there a year, two, three, have we made into disciples because, you know, we know about the upper room, but the Lord made disciples. He said, go preach and make disciples. And so that's kind of what I'm, I'm hearing with that. And so that's kind of coming to mind. Um, so I guess that kind of goes into my next question is what do you suggest that we as apostolics do to minister to these people? Or what do you feel is our role in this? And um, what can we do? What should we do? And I know that there are several apostolic ministers that are going over there and there are some people that are being baptized and filled with the Holy Ghost. And so, but is, is that something that we should do? Should we be going to Asbury? Should we be um, making or wherever do, should we be there or what should be our next move? Yeah, that's a, I, I think it's a good question. I, to, I think we should be wise as serpents, harmless as doves. So, of course, we should be there. Um, how how you bring people from where they are to you know on the next step of the journey? Just you know, we need the leading of the Lord. We need His direction. We need and and but you know that can't happen if we're not there, right? But you know it's. It's it, it, that's an individual. Um, I, I think it's, it's done one on one. Maybe uh, somebody comes in a place of prominence, but it's. Um, I mean, just I, I would just say with great wisdom and discernment and. Um, I think we, we we tread carefully, but we tread. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then I, another thing that kind of came to mind, I was at work today and I was thinking, um, what a great conversation starter to be able to have a way to talk to people of something that's already going on that they know about. Um, and my thought was, 
you know, and I want to be able to tell people like, Hey, this, this happens at my church, <laughs> you know, you can right. feel the Lord and you can pray. And, you know, this kind of revival or this kind of spirit that's going on over there is at my church and, you know, trying to find opportunities to have a conversation with people, knowing that this is already something that people are already talking about being able to kind of, you know, play that role and, um, be the witness that, you know, take up, take this opportunity and really use it. And that was kind of the only thing that kind of came to mind because physically me, I don't think I'm going to go <laughs> to Asbury, you know, I've some several of my friends that just might not be something that I can do physically or timing or, you know, leave and got so many things going on, but I was trying to think like, what can I do other than pray? Like, what are the things that are, and like you said, it's, it's an individual thing everybody has got to decide leading of the Lord, what their next step should be. Yeah. If I, if I would go back just a little bit, a, a historical parallel, somewhat, not, not a perfect parallel, but you had John uh, Dowie, uh, John Alexander Dowie in the Zion movement in Chicago. This you know, actually started a city called Zion city, Illinois, just up Lake Michigan, a little bit from Chicago. And uh, he's faith, healer that you know pre-pentecostal right on the cosmic pentecostalism uh and part of what parham does is he tries you know there's he has some med medical issues that's dowie and parham tries to go and take over the movement and it's not parham's finest hour however many of the early leaders from in the pentecostal movement came out of zion so they were they were they took the next step in their faith journey. Somebody reached out to them. Somebody said, you, you know, you've got this deal about healing. The spirits also, you know, baptism spirits available to you. So you get leadership in the early Pentecostal movement that comes out of Zion. When when Parm tries to go in there and take it over, it it, it becomes a food fight. Uh, mm -hmm. But but somebody was going in there telling people about Pentecostalism in, in a way that became positive. And so uh, there were many people harvested from that revival into the Pentecostal revival. So somewhere in that, I don't, I don't, I, I don't know exactly what that looks like. It's, you know, you ask for the leading of the Lord and, and, and you trust that he can do miraculous things. Mm-hmm. You trust that there will be some people that will hopefully, well, that are, we know that there are people that are being baptized and getting the Holy Ghost. And right. so hopefully they would continue that and then become, you know, established members at a church and be right. disciples. Right. Um, right. So that, that's a huge thing that I think that I, I feel personally that we, it's too soon to know what will happen. I feel like it's, right. it's too soon to know. And so um, yeah. it could go a lot of different ways. And I mean, I've been praying, Lord, you, you know, you can use this, but um, we don't know. Now we know that Azusa Street, we know that it was several generations, I'm sorry, not generations, several years, maybe even decades before the United Pentecostal Church was formed. It wasn't formed until 1945. So it was from, you know, 1901, am I right? When it was 1906, right, the street. Yeah. But Agnes Osmond got the Holy Ghost in 1901. Oh, one. Yes, yes. Oh, one. I still know some of my stuff. Okay. 
Yes. And so, yeah, from 1906, Azusa Street was poured out. And then it took a while for people to form, you know, some people were still believing Trinitarian, some people still believing like different things. And it wasn't until we kind of form the the movement and the, the solid doctrine that we believed in. Because there's some people that were Trinitarian that didn't want to believe or didn't believe in the oneness of God at that time. Yeah, I, and I, I think there's another message that we should take away from it. Uh, and that is that our college campuses are right harvest fields and it's a different kind of ministry, but it can be an incredibly fruitful ministry. It's, it's a time when people are examining life and direction for life. They're not a cup in the busyness of, of whatever career and family and they're they, there's a season of their life when they're searching for the direction their life would go. And, uh, you know, I, I know we have some campus, you know, CMI and, mm-hmm. but it, it might be time to think about, is there a way we should put more emphasis on college campuses? Right. Because I think that there's uh, one of the great places of, of potential. Obviously we believe that, that anybody and everybody can be saved. Uh, but, you know, we know when we go to a city, you know, you probably are not going to start a church in the most exclusive neighborhood in that church. Possible. Mm-hmm. Possible you'll win the 10 richest people in town, but <laughs> probably not. So we, we often start, you know, the, we often start churches in places where w- needs are evident. So I think there's an opportunity for, ev- you know, evident opportunity and college campus it's, it's different you don't you're not building a church because they're not going to stay in college they're, they're going right. on to wherever they go but it is a enormous harvest field that i think is deserving of another look and resources the church has yeah so so campus ministry and international cmi that is true i've heard so many great things about the awakening conference that they have every year that is put on yeah. on a different college campus and the incredible reports that they have of these people that are just so hungry and these campuses that are growing. I know we've got even some P7s, but especially that group, like you mentioned, um, the college age, um, the CMI people. But that that is true. That is something to think about. Like, okay, these are the people right. that are hungry. So we need to um, strike where the iron's hot. While the yes. like yeah. this is this is yeah. the time. If you want to start a CMI, <laughs> listeners, this is when when you should do it. So right. I absolutely agree with that. Um, so in your closing thoughts, we just wanted to kind of wrap things up. There are a lot of opinions about what's going on, and I know we've already mentioned a lot of things. Um, but what would you like people to know? Is there something that you would like people to know and about it that maybe they're not considering, or some of your final thoughts about it? I just that we should be careful not to put God in a box. And watch him work. That doesn't mean you don't love truth. Doesn't mean you, you don't think that we're his, you know, that, that God loves us individually and as people. But he, he's God and, and we don't manage him. We uh, submit to his will. And, mm-hmm. You know, he does what he wants to do. And, and he, you know, if he's bound by anything, he's bound by his word. I, I, I know that, but I also know that we sometimes close our minds off to what he's doing. And um, I want to be open to what 
God is doing. And I don't always have to understand it. And I can, I don't always have to be comfortable with it. Uh, but I want to, I want to recognize where he's working and offer what I can in the process of, of the way he works in the world. Mm-hmm. Well, that is true. Just don't put God in a box. That's good. Right. Don't put God in a box. He can do whatever he wants to do. What he's doing, we may not understand, but but he knows what he's doing. <laughs> he knows how right. it's all going to play out. Yes. Well, I appreciate you spending time with me today. And I know our listeners are going to be very excited to hear this podcast interview with you today. So thank you, Dr. Johnston, for all of your thoughts and your opinions on this Asbury Revival. And God bless everybody. And we will talk to you soon. All right. Lord bless you.